short time ago, I had somebody ask me a question about where to get information, um, how to continue the learning process, and it immediately triggered in me a thought, and I don't in any way want to discourage people from getting more information. Uh, anybody who knows me knows I'm an infophile, so I'm always looking for more information. I always want to know more, so I in no way intend to discourage that aspect, but I realized as soon as I was asked the question that there was a, a sort of transition that had taken place for me and that was that when I first started I would say the first five to even ten years of practice I believed that if I was going to have an undoing if there was something that was going to take me down it was going to be lack of knowledge and so I craved more knowledge mostly out of a sense of self-preservation um, a sense of how do I put myself in a position where I don't find the whole thing collapses overnight because I didn't know something. I, I was deathly afraid of not knowing and I found that that concept of not knowing kind of overtook everything and so when I had a patient that I wasn't sure how to help I always felt like the answer must be that I didn't know the answer and I needed to go on a quest for more knowing and that if I knew more the problem would be solved and it was sometime down that road probably sometime between year five and ten when I slowly started to realize that in most cases the solution to getting that patient better wasn't knowing more, it was actually being able to do more. It was developing the hand skills, it was being able to give a different adjustment, to give a better adjustment, a more precise adjustment, a, um, a, an adjustment the patient could receive better. It was about giving the adjustment that, that would make the difference and it really wasn't about knowing that in the end I did kind of know what I needed to know and even in the area of finding the subluxation in the first place one of the things that I would often say to myself um, when I was seeing a patient is I would say I would always remember the kiss the kiss approach keep it simple stupid um, and sometimes I would tell myself keep it subluxation stupid <laughs> find the subluxation and so, as complicated as we made it, with the most difficult cases, I had to reduce it down to the most simple thing, which is find the subluxation. The missing ingredient wasn't that I didn't know how to find a subluxation. The missing ingredient was learning how to find them better, more accurately, get more information on them. Like, what is my exact line of drive? Not a general direction, but an exact line of drive. And those things started to make a difference for me as I became more aware of the fact that I needed to do more than I needed to know. And so that's why I say this, not because I don't think you need to know, not because I don't want you to be in a quest to get more info, to always be learning, but I think sometimes when we, when we chase after the knowing, we tend to neglect the doing. And that was what happened with me, is I neglected the doing. And so uh, I've, I've often told students who followed me the story that when I first started in practice, there was a lot of things I couldn't do. Uh, maybe I could do them, but I couldn't do them well. Um, I've, I hardly did any pull moves. Uh, that came on later, and that's a story all to itself. Um, but one of the big ones was I, I used my knee chest table for thoracics, but I pretty much never used my knee chest table for lumbars. And I wasn't really that good at using my high-low table for lumbars. So I was pushing everything. And that is extremely limiting. 
And so in those situations, if I wasn't helping that patient, it wasn't because I didn't know enough, it's because I couldn't do enough. I needed more ways of adjusting an L5. And so what ended up happening was I made a, an, a, a choice that I was gonna start adjusting lumbars on the high-low table. Uh, and so I was comfortable there. I set the tension on the high-low really high so that I, they had a good amount of pushback and I got comfortable with setting on the high-low table. And then one day my high-low table broke and now I didn't have my high-low. But at this point I had already started to recognize the value of the high-low. I knew when I needed to be using it that I might not be using it. So the idea of going back to just doing pushes and pulls at that time was like, well, no, there's certain patients I need to be able to do a little bit different way. So I sucked up my fear <laughs> and, I and I went over to the knee chest and I thought, okay, this is very similar. But now that I know the feel of doing an L5 on a high-low, I need to start doing it on the knee chest. So I started doing it on the knee chest. And then I got better and better at the knee chest. And in the meantime, I got my high-low fixed. And at that point, began to recognize a slight distinction between when I should use the knee chest and when I should use the high-low. So I had actually gained another table, another opportunity to do something. So by the time it was all, all played out, probably against my will, but very much to my benefit, it played out so that now I was having pushes, pulls, high-low, and knee chest. And all of a sudden, there was so much more that I could do. And so for, for those patients who had that L5 problem, my solution was not that I learned anything new. Well, I kind of did. I learned how to use some different tables. But it wasn't really a knowledge problem. It was a doing problem. And so that's why I bring this up, because in many cases, if you're struggling with a patient, it probably isn't that you need to know any more than you know right now. It's that you need to develop the hand skills and the diversity to be able to do it a different way or to do it a better way and be able to do more and, and do better. So um, one, of the, one of the other kind of side branches that I see of that is that knowing that process, knowing how that tends to play out, a lot of times, and I've noticed it much more recently, um, and I'll, I'll blame social media for this, but I see a lot of people who feel the need to, uh, I guess, put themselves out there or present themselves as being an expert. And that's a really hard thing because not everybody's an expert. And I know you probably won't like me saying this, but the fact of the matter is, if you're in your 20s and you claim to be an expert, I can guarantee you that anybody who's 30 and older is probably not buying it. And in fact, if you're in your 30s and you claim to be an expert, there's a pretty good chance anybody in their 40s and over is probably not buying it. Because people who have been on this planet a while start to understand that you can get good in a fairly short amount of time. But to truly be an expert takes a long time. It's not something you can microwave. And so what's happening is a lot of the older people are recognizing that when young people say that they're an expert, they don't see it as, oh, you're some kind of phenom who just achieved it early. They see it as, oh, you just have a really low standard. <laughs> so it's really easy to be an expert if your standard for being an expert is really low. And so that's kind of the challenge. And so the reason I wanted to bring this up is the fact that I don't think you need to be an expert. I don't know that I've ever told any patient that I was an expert in anything. I just do what I do. And I, I've always felt that the adjustment sells itself in the same way that if you can do something at an expert level, 
you don't have to say anything about it. You do something at an expert level and people will be like, whoa, that was expert level. People who don't know anything about it and don't know, they, they can recognize greatness when they find it. Like, I'm not a great chef, but I know good food when I taste it. It's one of those kind of deals that when you give a great adjustment, people will say, whoa, that was a great adjustment. You don't have to say you're an expert. The expert just kind of comes through. And so the challenge, I think, is the fact that I, I totally understand this pressure people have that you have to present yourself that way, that you have to present yourself as being an expert. But I think that it's that pressure of feeling like I need people to think that I'm an expert. I need them to respect what I know and what I can do and trying to balance that with you knowing what you really can do and can't do that causes a lot of what people feel is imposter syndrome, especially if expert level is now the standard so that you're either an expert or you're nothing. That is a tremendous amount of pressure. And that's really, really hard to achieve, especially when you're young and it takes time and you can't make it happen tomorrow, then you've put yourself in a box where you're really not going to feel anything but pressure and there's nothing you can do about it. There is no right choice. There is no right decision. There's no, there isn't any right behavior because there's nothing you can do to make yourself an overnight expert. Just like there's nothing you can do to be an overnight bodybuilding comp, um, bodybuilding champion. Like if you're starting today, that's great, but you're not going to arrive tomorrow. Everybody knows that. And so when you put yourself in that kind of a box, it really, it really starts to mess with your psyche. Uh, it starts to set you up where no matter how good you do, you're still going to be disappointed. And when you're working day after day after day, and instead of seeing the slow, steady progress, all you see is what you haven't done and what you haven't become, then it just starts to beat it way at your psyche and it starts to affect who you are. And those, none of those things are good. And so that's why I think it's important that, um, that we kind of understand this concept of what is, an, what is truly an expert and what do we believe as an expert and anybody who, who knows me knows um, that I talk a lot about um, there's a documentary uh, called Hero Dreams of Sushi and that documentary had a huge impact on me not because um, I love sushi so much although I guess I do but the real reason was recognizing that these guys put in decades of hard hard work and we're talking about dead fish. And then here we are thinking, I'm gonna go learn to be a chiropractor, and after three years of school, I've got this thing figured out. To me, it's just preposterous. That's such a, a low standard. And so, um, thinking about all that dead fish and how they, <laughs> how they prepare it and how they think about it, um, that kind of got me going. But there's another story uh, from, when was this? This was probably about 2007 that this happened, but, um, I went over to, I went with my family over to England. I had a cousin who was getting married. And since we were there, we decided to do this big tour. My grandma was in her 90s. Uh, she was probably about 92-ish or something like that. She lived to be 99. Uh, so she was over there and we kind of recognized that this is probably her only chance to go to England and Scotland and Ireland. So we did a big tour so we could show her everything. So we start off on this tour and um, and one of the days, she picked out that she wanted to go to the Waterford Crystal Factory, which is in Southern Ireland. So this was on the list of things we were going to do. So I remember that morning, we got up, my brother and I, 
we had our own hotel room. So we get up that morning and we're like, oh, we got to go to the Waterford Crystal Factory. I guess that's all we're doing today. And we thought, man, today's going to be terrible. It's going to be boring. But we're like, well, it's for her, so whatever. We'll just suck it up. We'll do it and whatever. So um, off we go. And we get to the Crystal Factory. And the very first thing that happens on the tour is this person is explaining to us that you have to work as a glass blower for something like seven to ten years. before, and, and you have to demonstrate mastery before you can even apply for an apprenticeship at the Crystal Factory. Then if you get it, you're going to be an apprentice for a long time. And there is no fast tracking. There's no some amazing savant who comes in and they go, wow, you're the greatest black blower I've ever seen. We're going to fast track you. It doesn't happen. There is a set amount of time. And so there's virtually no chance of you seeing anybody who's a master glass blower at the Crystal Factory who's less than like 40 years old. It, it just isn't going to happen. And so as they're explaining to us all the work they have to do just to apply, to then get an apprenticeship, and then what they have to do during the apprenticeship to have any chance of being promoted up to the master level, while they're telling us all this, there's a man with a very long straw and a ball of glass on the end. And as he's blowing and turning it, right before our eyes, this ball of glass slowly materializes into a pitcher with perfect proportions. And I mean perfect proportions. Then as he's finishing up, he takes this long wand, he dips it in molten glass, he brings it out, and in one fast, quick move, he makes the most ornate handle on this, on this pitcher that I ever could have imagined. And he did it in a fraction of a second as he just whipped his wrist. And I remember in that moment thinking, okay, that takes my sushi thing to a whole nother level. Now we're talking, I mean, this is so much perfection and yet this is years and years and years of work that went into it. Uh, and the idea of somebody being like, well, I've been blowing, blowing glass for a couple years now. I think I can do what he can do. It's so funny to me that something as inanimate as glass is seen with such reverence, just like the dead fish. And yet here we are working with people's bodies. And for some reason, we have this strange culture that says that in a blink of an eye, I can be the master. I can do it all. I'm now an expert. And I think that as much as it may pain us to do so, we need to do something to kind of change that culture. We need to be okay with not being an expert. We need to be okay with being less than perfect, but on our way too. We're in the process of attaining that level. We all have that as a goal and we're moving towards that, but it's okay to not be there because there's, there's these higher levels that are just, when you're at a low level, it can be almost impossible to imagine. And so my one last story from the Waterford Crystal Factory um, is we got to the end of the tour and that's where the glass cutter was. And so he had his little cutting machine and he, said, and he took a piece of glass and he very quickly made, um, made five, uh, five different surfaces that were like pentagons. So he made five pentagons on one surface and he did it very quickly in less than a minute. And then he held it up and he said, here, look at these. And you look at the sides of these pentagons, are, any, is, are the sides equal? So you take a look at it and they were spot on. And so this guy is like measuring these things within a millimeter easily, within a fraction of a millimeter. I mean, to the naked eye, they're exact. And yet he's cutting them off in a second. And somebody said, what's the most you've had to do? And he pointed to a picture on the wall. And as we looked at this picture on the wall, it was a picture of a trophy being held by Tiger Woods, and it had, I don't know, probably 
It was a ball with all these different flat surfaces on it, probably 50 or 100 of these flat surfaces. And he said, I made that trophy. I cut it using, doing exactly what you see here. And he said, every one of the, and you look, just looking at it, you can see they're all perfectly proportioned. And he said, I cut the whole thing by hand and by eyesight. I just watched and did it. So here we had a master glass cutter who was every bit as capable as those master glass blowers. And that day of the whole trip, as much as I enjoyed seeing uh, the, the castle at Edinburgh, uh, going to Bath, uh, visiting York and seeing the big wall, like all these different things we did, the thing that had the most impact on me was that day that I thought was going to be lame at the Waterford Crystal Factory, where I got to see what high-level skill really looked like, and it totally changed my perception. And as I got on the bus, I couldn't help but think to myself, I got to up my game. Like for me, that day in 2007 was transformational. I had been a chiropractor for about seven years, and I just said, man, I got to up my game. I got to aim so much further because I've just seen what is capable, what humans are capable of, and I gotta take that level of precision and that level of dedication and I gotta put it into what I do. And so that, that I hope it has that same effect on you. I'm sure probably not quite as much because you haven't seen it with your own eyes, but um, hopefully that helps you to see why, why I'm saying what I'm saying. It's not meant to be derogatory in any way. It's just realizing how much more is out there. And, and at that time, at that time as I saw that, I thought, well, I'm not an expert. I can't call myself an expert at all. But I need to get to work. I need to try to attain that level in chiropractic of what I see happening over here in the crystal factory. As I mentioned before, I think that one of the reasons why imposter syndrome becomes a thing for people is because you have to project yourself as being this high level for fear that if, if people perceive you as being less, then they won't trust you, they won't give you a chance, and so you have to put yourself out there as though oh, I'm way up here, and yet deep down inside you acutely know what all of your weaknesses are. And so I think that as much as that might beat up at your self-esteem, it's also extremely important to understand where self-esteem, true self-esteem, actually comes from. And that, I think, might be a mystery to a lot of people, but actual self-esteem, the thing that you really need uh, to give you security so you're not insecure, so that you're not projecting from a place of insecurity, so you're, you're not doing the things that insecure people do. The true self-esteem can only be created by actual accomplishment. So, for example, if I run a race with 10 people in it and I come in fifth, I kind of know, well, I was right in the middle, I was average. If somebody tells me, oh, but you were the best, you looked the best, everything you were doing was great, you just didn't get the result, that sounds nice and flowery, but deep down inside, I know that I still came in fifth. That doesn't actually help my self-esteem. In fact, what's really strange about the whole process is that in some ways, in many ways, it actually hurts my self-esteem. Because I know when somebody is trying to build me up in a way that I didn't actually earn. And so, Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who grow up with parents who do that, and they mean well. They mean very well. They just don't know that their well-meaning behavior actually has the exact opposite effect. And so when you find yourself in the trap of feeling like, I just don't know if I can, I beat myself up, I have this negative self-talk and all this other stuff going on, the only, the only way to get out of that, the only way that actually works 
is that you have to go out and you have to achieve something. And then when you achieve it, you have to let yourself achieve it. If I go out and I run that same race and I come in first, I know I came in first. I don't need anybody to tell me I came in first. I don't need anybody to prop me up. Nobody can convince me I did a poor job. Like, yeah, you won, but it was ugly. Your, your, your running didn't look as good as other people's. I don't care. I won. <laughs> it doesn't matter. And that's kind of how the whole thing works is that you need your own self-achievement. And so this is also one of the reasons why I think that practice can be so beneficial because when you're practicing and you can objectively see yourself being able to do things that you couldn't do before, then you get that self, that self-esteem. I've seen my son do this with video games where he was stuck on something and he couldn't get past it and he was frustrated. And I just told him, just keep trying, do something different. Um, just, just keep working to figure it out. By allowing him to mess up until he figured it out, the moment he figured it out, he couldn't wait to come tell me and his self-esteem went up because he didn't just achieve the thing he wanted to achieve, but he figured out how to achieve the thing he wanted to achieve. And so I know that that's true, not just with adjusting, if you're towards the beginning and you're like, well, there are certain adjustments that I just can never get to move. That's okay. Keep trying. Keep do, do different things, experiment, just keep trying and figure out how to figure out how to do it. And if you're further on where you can adjust, but sometimes there's patients that you're not sure what to do with and there are certain cases that give you trouble, same thing. Just keep trying and trying and trying. And the self-esteem comes from figuring it out and knowing that you've actually had genuine accomplishment. And I think that that's one of the hard, the hard things is when we live in, when we live in a world that's um, this whole YouTube world where people are posting their best cases. They're posting themselves in the best light. It's, it's Hollywood. It's not real life. And so nobody's going to have a miserable failure and then post the video. Like, I know that. You know that. And yet for some reason we'll watch the videos and we'll think, oh man, I can't do what they could do. I wish I could do that. Like, okay, so they got one. But they might have missed two. It'd be like me going fishing. And day after day after day I catch nothing. But at least once a week I catch something. So once a week I post the video of me catching something. And you're thinking, this guy catches a fish every time he goes out. That's not true. <laughs> I only show you when I catch a fish. I'm not going to show you all the times I sat there bored, couldn't get anything done. So it's that fake world that sucks us in. And we all know this, but sometimes we let it beat us down anyway. Sometimes you just have to turn it off. Just get off and stop watching. Uh, I've, I've said many times that for most of my career, I lived in such a bubble. I didn't know what anybody was doing. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't actually care what anybody else was doing. I was doing my own game. I was playing my own game. I was going to work. I was figuring out what I was good at. I was figuring out what I was bad at. I was working to get better at the things I was good at. And I was working to get better at the things I was bad at. Uh, I was just totally focused on what I do. And that's a large part been my approach to a lot of things. Like I've said before, even when I, like, if I go cycling, I don't worry about what other people are doing. I'm just playing my own game. I want to objectively know that I'm passing obstacles that have held me back. I've done the same thing with running. Um, I don't care if somebody can run a marathon. I personally could not. The only thing I care about is how far can I go till I pretty much die? Well, how do I push that limit? And so I only focus on what I can do and how I can make it better. Don't worry that somebody else can do it better. 
Uh, that's not really the issue. The issue is if you'll focus on what you can do, improve it a tiny little bit every single day over the course of a year or two or three or four, you will find yourself in a whole different area. So I hope that if you take what I've shared with you today and you wrap all of these things up together, uh, put them all together into one, one, nice little, one nice little basket, you can see that it's, you want to aim high you want to have high goals. You want to understand what expert level really is. That should be the thing we're trying to attain. And yet at the same time, we need to be fully aware of where we're at today and how we get just a little bit better today. Uh, and we don't, we don't let it beat up our psyche. Because I do know that this profession, um, I, if it was compared to a, a sport, I've said many times, I would, I would compare it to golf more than any other sport. Because um, I've heard a joke, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said that... Um, Golf is a sport that was designed for people who don't swear often enough. <laughs> that that's how frustrating it is. And I think, um, I think chiropractic can be kind of like that. That some days you have your day and you're like, man, I could do no wrong. And yet, if you've done it for very long, you know that right after that day could come the worst day you've ever had. So you never really know what it's going to bring you. And just because you technically know how to do it doesn't mean you'll always produce your best results. Um, we fade, we get tired, especially just fatigue. If you're seeing a lot of people, um, or I've had days where I wasn't even seeing that many people, but I had a lot of hard cases, and I was so mentally fatigued. And so we have to fight both physical fatigue and mental fatigue. Both can come in there. And so when you're dealing with, especially if you're dealing with both of them at the same time, you're probably not going to put your best product forward. That's okay, but that's where it's frustrating. And so uh, don't let that beat you down. Don't let that get inside your mind. Just keep... Just keep plugging ahead uh, and trying to make each day better than the one before.